0: When you see that photograph, what's your first thought? Arizona. Okay, that's not the one I was looking for, but we'll keep working from there and see if we can get there. What's your first thought? Something died. Something died, yeah? Judy? I was gonna say death. death, okay. Anyone else? Anyone else? Talk to me. What? Ribs, Ribs. thank you. I, I appreciate a man who thinks that way. <laughs> Dry or. Yeah, never mind. We won't go into the rub part of it and all. Anyone else? What do you think of dinner? Dinner? Yeah, I mean, two guys that I relate to very well. So, you know, exactly. Who said that? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate that. So, because that's where we're going. All right. You wonder? Do you wonder when you see something like that in the desert? How did it die? How did that animal perish there? Um, did it get lost? Did it, did it get left behind from the herd? Was it attacked by wolves or, or, or did it starve to death? You know, when you see those, there's a story there. But that's all we see is the outcome of that story. You know, and did it, was it a, a blinding sandstorm that culled it away from the herd and it, and it couldn't find it and it couldn't get to the water and, and it perished? Now, given the landscape there, it probably wasn't a blinding blizzard, you know. But that could also be the case where somehow or another it gets separated and it gets lost. And, and, but, but for the sake of our, of our discussion this morning and all, I think it's safe to say we can maybe even uh, speculate that it wasn't just something that happened instantaneously. That it was probably one set of circumstances or one decision or one choice, or one thing that happened that led it to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, until finally this animal found itself separated. Obviously, no water, probably very little food. It was weak. It was left behind. And eventually it became weaker and weaker until it laid down Gasping for its last breath, and then finally there were no more breaths to be had, and it gave up the spirit. But let's shift gears. How many of us might feel like that photograph today? Dry, tired, not dead. But worn out, spiritually dry. No joy about spiritual things. The stuff that you used to be excited about, you like look at it and you go, hmm, I need to do that. Lacking that kind of passion where you're just going through the motions and, and the passion for what you used to have about things isn't there anymore. In, in his book that I read many years ago, Gordon MacDonald, Restoring Your Spiritual Passion, he, he tells the story of seeing dozens of World War II ships that at one time were um, fighting ships. They were sailing in a wartime environment. They were filled with service personnel and armaments and, and, and supplies. And, and that ship had a purpose. And what it was doing was important. It was not only just important, but it was important to world freedom. But now, it is anchored. Empty. Just there. No purpose. Just there. Perhaps that might describe how some people feel. Just there. Just there. Quite honestly, it's not uncommon for believers to feel that way from time to time. Um, it's why many pastors, you know, after a Sunday a ministry, they take Mondays off because they get to a place where it's like this—you know, no good thing can come from this day. After you know a, an intense time of ministry, I would imagine that Freddie Coyle, our speaker up at Sun, up at, up at student camp this week, he will take some time out where he'll rest, reflect, gather himself. Elijah felt that way. You know, in 1 Kings 19, we have the story where he had this epic battle with the prophets of Baal. And they spent this day together, and there was a contest about whose God is real. Is Baal, this this carven image, is it real? Or is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob real? And so they spend this whole day together, and, and they set up this contest. And it's like, okay, you call your God, and we'll see how he responds. And then I'll call our God and we'll see how he responds. And you might know the story that, you know, it goes into the afternoon and and the God of Baal, the Baal has not responded and and they've done everything they can. They've danced, they've cut themselves, they've bled themselves. Everything they can to try and draw the attention to their God and get him to respond and and stand up for himself. And it comes to the end of the day and, and, and Elijah says, all right. They've had their chance now, so bring in more water. Totally soak this wood, this sacrifice here, this wood here. Totally soak it. And then he prays. And then fire comes down. And it doesn't only consume the sacrifice, but it consumes most of what's around it. And in that moment, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has proven to be true. And so what does he do? Does he go back home for a a, a big parade and ticker tape and everything because of this great victory? No, he goes out with his servant and he wanders out into the desert and he finds a juniper tree and he lies down underneath it and he he sits there and sleeps. And then he wanders out of the wilderness into a cave where it says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he's hunkers down in this cave, and his response to God is, after this, giant, after this giant victory, he says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. The dude feels totally defeated, even after a super victory. But God woos him and calls him back, and he steps back into service, and he steps back even into powerful ministry again. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who accomplished so much, quite a distinguished-looking gentleman. William Booth said, "'While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. "'While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. "'While men go to prison in and out and in and out as they do now, I'll fight.'" And while there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl left on the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight and I'll fight to the very end. That dude had passion. And yet he wrote a letter to his wife one time. And and he said, I wonder if perhaps I could find something else to do. Perhaps in London. Perhaps a secretary position or some kind of respectable job that would keep us going. I know how difficult it is to obtain those things without friends or influence, but I am fixed. But perhaps, hope against hope, I suppose something will come. That was a dude without passion. Same guy. There are other guys, like C.T. Sudd. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That dude has passion. There is a dude called Count Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. The only reason you would know about him is because he was the beginner of the Moravian movement, which has its impact, has its stuff here in our region. This dude was a passionate dude. I have but one passion, and it is he. And it is he alone. And the world is the field, and the field is the world, and henceforth that country shall be my home where I, must, most, where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. Another very passionate dude. There's another guy that Gordon MacDonald quotes. His name is Willard Hotchkiss. And I wasn't as familiar with Willard. He was a missionary in Central Africa, and he said this, I have dwelt 40 years practically alone in Africa. I have been stricken 39 times with the fever, three times attacked by lions, several times by rhinoceros. He says rhinoceros. I don't know. Let me, but let me say to you, I would gladly go through the whole thing again if I could have the joy of again bringing the word Savior and flashing it into the darkness that envelops another tribe in Central Africa. That is passion. That is passion. You hear all those quotes. If you sense all that passion of these people, and your secret reaction here this morning is that it makes you more miserable than you already are. If you feel like you like to if you feel like you're tired of having to live up to someone else's grand story, if you feel guilty because you don't feel that way, if you feel like you're ready to to turn me off if you've already done so, you might be that dead animal in the desert. Your spiritual passion might be dried up. The Apostle Paul was passionate There's a a passage in Galatians 5 that he gets mighty graphic and passionate about where he's speaking about those false teachers who are talking about circumcision. And he says, I wish they would just castrate themselves. That's passion, outspoken passion. That's Chris Christie kind of passion, you know what I mean? (laughs) It doesn't win you many votes, but people like it. But in Philippians 3... In Philippians 3, he says this. No, dear brothers, I am still not all that I should be, but I am bringing, listen to it. What does he say? All my energies, he says, to bear on this one thing, forgetting all the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I strain, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God is calling us up to heaven because of Christ, what Christ did for us. And then, um, in 2 Corinthians, again, more passion. In 2 Corinthians, he writes about his experiences. And he sounds like Hotchkiss there. Because in 2 Corinthians there, he speaks of his experiences. Chapter 11, verse 23. And he says this. Are they servants of Christ? He's speaking about false teachers and other people and other teachers in the church. I am more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received the Jews' 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have spent in the deep. I've been... I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And he goes on. Here's a dude that has passion because he has suffered all that. And continues on. All that and continues on. But there's one guy that I particularly like his passion even more than Paul's because of his age. There's Caleb. He's, he's the dude that I really like, his passion. You'd find Caleb and Joshua, if you want to just go there with me. You don't, I'm just going to read his story real quick. Caleb was one of the first, he was one of the original ten um, spies who went into the promised land that Moses had sent in. And you perhaps remember that story where Caleb goes in and he spies out the land. And he and Joshua alone of the ten spies come back and say, this is a place we should take. This is ours. This is a good thing to do. And here in Joshua 14, verse 7, here is Caleb speaking. Now, this is many years later. And they're finally about to go over into the promised land. All those other spies who said this is impossible, they died. (laughs) They're not in this story any longer. Only Caleb and Joshua are left of those ten spies. And here is Caleb in verse 7. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went with me, Made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and your people, your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now, behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. These forty five years, from the time that the Lord spoke, This word to Moses, when Israel, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. This is a passionate old codger. I am still strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. I wouldn't want to find out. You know, if the dude's talking that way, I'd just take his word for it, you know. And my strength was then, so as it is now, for war and for going in and for coming out. Now then, give me this hill country. I love that. Give it to me. I'm 85 years old, but give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. Caleb was passionate. As an old man, he was passionate still. David was a dude who was passionate. You know about David. And, and there are many, many times when we stumble across his passion. But there are many, many times when we stumble across his unpassionate moments. And so today I want you to open up your Bible to, to Psalm 119. I mentioned this last week. And so Psalm 119 and verse 81. Because we find here... A man who is languishing. A man who is struggling with his passion. A man who could have holed up with Elijah for those 40 days in that cave and fit right in. The two of them would have been singing the same song. So in verse 81, let me just let's read this passage here. My soul languishes for my salvation and I wait for your word. My eyes Fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? And though I become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? How long will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me. Men who are not in accordance with your law. All the commandments are faithful, but they have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep thy testimony of thy mouth. You see here in this passage, a guy that this is probably some of the stuff that Elijah said. He said here stuff like this. He speaks of himself as languishing. He speaks of himself as waiting. Isn't waiting hard Waiting is so difficult. And he's speaking about waiting for your word. He talks about longing in here for your word. He talks about wanting comfort. And then he uses an illustration that we're not that familiar with, and it speaks of a wineskin in the smoke. You know, well, a wineskin, when it is being used, would be pretty supple. It would be, like, flexible. It would be movable. It would be, it'd be just soft to the touch. But a wineskin that was probably left in a tent or, or a building or something around the smoke would eventually become hard. These, these wineskins, just looking at the history of it, they were used out in the wilderness, and if they left or they left hanging around a fire where the smoke got to them, they would absorb the smoke after a long period of time. And the skin would become hard, and it would shrivel because of the smoke, and it would become useless. And here this man is saying, I am hard. I'm shriveled. I feel useless. Probably not an uncommon feeling for some of us at one time or another. I've been thinking about this. I've been processing it for my own self. And I wondered what it was about Caleb that would make him after so many years, step forward and say, give me that mountain. I wondered, what was it about Paul, who would suffer everything that he talks about in Second Corinthians there and say, here I am, I'm back for more. I wondered about the people that John prayed for this morning, about what is it that makes a man or a woman or a child know that when they open their mouth, that they will suffer punishment for doing so because it is against the law to do so. What is it that causes men, women, and children to do the unthinkable at times? To step forward again when you know what the reaction is going to be. What is it? In my mind, it was that I looked at Caleb and that's why I like him. I understand him a little bit maybe. Not that I'm that old. And not that I'm that passionate. But I believe that he saw God's promises to him as never failing. He believed God's word. He believed that everything that he had said to them all those years before were going to come true. He believed it when he went into the land the first time. And God said, go in, spy it out. I've given this to you. And he went into it and he looked at it and he goes, this is good, this is good, God's given it to us, let's go back and do it. But those other eight said, no, this is a bad idea. They didn't believe God's word. When we get into these places where we feel dried up, where we feel shriveled, where we feel useless, we go back to something that we talked about last November, because I just remember preaching it because I was walking through it. And that's what is true. What is true right now and standing on what is true. I believe that Caleb was able to come back all those years later as an old man and say, that hill country, you promised it to me. What is true? God made a promise and God keeps all his promises. That is true. And so Caleb comes back 45 years later, as an old man, and says, you promised that to me, you keep your promises, I want it now. You made it a promise to me. What did Paul know to be true? Paul knew that he says, I am with you, and I will never leave you. And so he steps into situation after situation. He floats on the sea, he takes the beatings. he takes the imprisonment, he takes the suffering, and he comes back time and time and time again because he says, he's worth it. He made promises to me that still stand. And even though right now, what I'm receiving in this moment, I have promises from Him that still stand. And I believe those promises more than I believe what's happening to me right now. It is, it goes right back into Hebrews where it talks about all of those who went before and He says, they were not even, they were not even, um, how does it put it in Hebrews? it says, that they were not fit for this world. This world was not fit for them, I believe, how it says it, right? And it goes and it says, why? Because they saw something else. The circumstance at this time, what was happening at this time, was just now they understood that it was the dot on the line, but the line was bigger. We've talked about that before, haven't we? They understood then in Hebrews and Paul and Caleb and, 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 and Zinzendorf and, and all these other guys, they understood that from that moment... In that moment, what they were going through was paling into what was to come. It was passing. Because God had made a promise that is still to be made, that is still to be kept. They believed God at His word. And even though they were not receiving it in that moment, the promise from a promise-keeping God was enough to sustain them in that moment. When we are in these places where we are shriveled up, where we are languishing, where we are waiting, where we are longing, where we want comfort, in that moment, Psalms answers all of those things. In the same passage... The answer comes forth. Because he says in verse 83, I did not forget your statutes. I remembered what you said and I count you as faithful. In verse 86, all your commandments, they're true. Everything you've said is true. When you said that there's another thing coming, it's true. I believe that. When you said that you give me shelter, it's true. I believe that. He In verse 87, he says... I did not forsake your precepts. In verse 88 he says, revive me according to your loving kindness. It's not my circumstances are not going to change, but your faithful and your loving kindness are what revives me. He's saying, nothing around me needs to change for me to be revived. You, your loving kindness is what revives me. It's you. Verse 49 of the same chapter, I just went back a little bit. It talks there, just look at it in Psalm 119, 49. Remember the word to your servant in which thou hast made me hope. In verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. Thy word has revived me. Thy word has revived me. There's this imagery throughout the scripture as well. Like, for instance, Psalm 57, one. Psalm 57.1 speaks of... Um, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in Thee. In the shadow of Your wings I take refuge. Until destruction passes by. In, in, in Psalm 91.4. Go there with me. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. I loved the passages that Debbie used in worship times: 19, um, Psalm nineteen seven, um, Psalm eighteen two, and and this this imagery here of a mother taking care of its young. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. And Matthew, Christ even speaks about this. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, how I've longed to gather you like chicks, and to protect you, and to love you, and to care for you. This imagery of being cared for, even when we feel shriveled, even when we are longing, even when we feel useless. It is believing, standing on what we know is true, going into these passages just like this one, having that image that in this moment, he is taking care of me. It's not uncommon for us to have a season of life when we feel like all the spiritual air has been sucked out of us. But it's also not uncommon for the Word of God to step into our lives in those moments and slowly, sometimes ever so slowly, to restore our hope, our energy, and our passion. And if you are in that season of life that lacks passion and joy and spiritual vitality, there's just one road out of that valley. And that road leads through this book. It leads through here. It goes right back into what he says in Psalm 119, throughout it over and over again. My soul longs for you. And then he says, but your word revived me. And time and again in Psalm 119, he says that over and over and over, your word revives me. When we are feeling this way, when we are feeling like that all of our passion is gone. The only place that we ever get it back is not through more service, is not through more preaching, it's not through more singing, it's not through listening to your favorite worship disc, it's not like going to church more, it's not going to another Bible study more, it's being in the Word more. It's being here more. It's being here more. Let's pray.